the things I think that bring us the most joy, and this is, I don't know, this is a theory, bring us the most joy, make us happy, give us meaning in life. They're carbon neutral. They're not high intensity energy use. They are being able to sort of make connections to people in your community. They are spending time with your family and loved ones. Um, they are uh, creating things and enjoying small moments where you live. Um, now, that is sort of interesting when you think about what we spend most of our energy on, right? And we go back to talking about junk mobility, right? We're, you know, spending a lot of carbon, spending a lot of energy, spending a lot of money on things that maybe don't bring us the most joy. So I'm really interested in this kind of, you know, alignment between climate action and happiness and sort of human, you know, human thriving. Because I, I do think that the answer has to be we solve the climate crisis and we accidentally thrive in the process. Hi, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of The Goodness Exchange and host of the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. At this podcast, you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. And yes, it is still an amazing world. And on this podcast, we'll introduce you to the people making it that way. And here's the thing. Even though the thought leaders I talk to every week are knee deep in tackling some of the world's biggest problems, they still think the future is bright. We need to see what they see. And we can. And I'm hoping that this conversation is going to be one of those moments where a whole new landscape and possibility opens out for you. So our guest today is an amazing fellow that we wrote an article, but we wrote about a, an article about his area of expertise at the Goodness Exchange. And at the end of this podcast, I'll link you to that article. And also we'll put it in the show notes too. You don't have to miss a thing. So welcome Blaine Merker. Blaine, I'm going to give a little bio for you and it's going to fall far short of everything that needs to be said about your work, but I'll give it a whirl and then you can listen on your story a little bit. Okay. Sounds good. All right. So Blaine is an urban designer inspired by the challenge of making cities that support human happiness, connection, and health. Well, heck, I thought that's the way it always was. I thought that's been the goal of cities evolving since the beginning of time, but not really. <laughs> Turns out through most of the last century, cities have been designed not for people, but for cars. When I first understood this notion, I thought of places like like Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, where there's just a sliver of availability of the shore and then 10 lanes of highway or things like the Big Dig, you know, in Boston. City planners were realizing that, that they had this huge roadway cutting right through the heart of such a beautiful historic city. And then there's what Blaine talks about when he talks about the amount of paved parking that we have created in the United States, equivalent to the size of the state of Georgia. This is a lot of space and beautiful space devoted to cars. And Blaine's work is putting putting the ship right on that. He works for a, an amazing company called Gell, and I'll let him tell us about his role in that company and just a little bit about how he came to this way of adding his knowledge and zone of genius to what's making the world a brighter place. So, Blaine, I know that falls for short, but welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. 
Thank you, Dr. Linda. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, tell us a little bit, expand on what I said and talk to us a little bit about your story and how you got here. You bet. I'll kind of start at the present maybe and, and sort of work back. Okay. Cur- currently, I am a director and partner at a company called Gale. We're based actually in Copenhagen. We were started in Copenhagen in 2000, but kind of have been around as a practice going back more than 40 years. And the name is Danish because it's, it's named after our founder, Jan Gale, who I'll talk a little bit more about, who kind of pioneered the science of behavior and space together and understanding sort of how the spaces we live in affect our behavior and how we can observe behavior to better design spaces. So it turned out there was a great demand for that kind of expertise around the world. So his practice kind of went from an academic one to really kind of a global leader in this field. And I was fortunate enough to start the U.S. offices of Gale when we moved here in 2014. So I started up the West Coast office. I'm now one of the leaders in that office. We've got a great, great group of people, growing team. We do projects all over the world, North and South America, and then um, actually every continent except Antarctica currently. So we're a small but mighty company, but really focused on this thing that you said, you know, making cities for people. That is our mission. We are out there to tip cities back to a human focus rather than, I guess you could call it a, a machine focus. I want to interrupt just enough to say something that you said to me in our in our short pre-call that just it just really got to me. You said we've taken all the joy and humanity out of our streets. This is so true when you think about the way we zoom along on the streets and we don't make eye contact and and they're just not built to stand still for one second. You've got to keep moving or be run over. You know, we've let sort of like this the discipline of engineering create what we got. Instead of letting communities of people talk about what they need and what they want. So yeah, keep keep on going. I I just think it's a fascinating upside down approach to (laughs) the future. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And the street is such an interesting place in our cities historically, right? I mean, it for thousands of years, it functioned as a place. It functioned as a meeting place for communities. It, it was a place of commerce, a place for children to play. It was a place for old people to sit and watch young people move by. It was a place to connect with neighbors, to know what was going on. And you could really think of it as the primary public space of the city. You know, there are ceremonial spaces like you know, in the ancient Rome, the Forum or the Market or, you know, the Agora in Greece. But those are actually more the sort of exception than the rule of the street as the primary organizer of public life in cities. It's only in the last hundred years or so that we have, you could say, sort of repurposed entirely the function of streets for movement and for the movement mostly of mechanized vehicles of, you know, heavy, heavy vehicles, sort of heavier and heavier every year. And the cost to us, I think, has been kind of so incremental that we haven't noticed it. Kind of the, you know, the frog in the boiling water. We don't really realize what we've lost, but it's a fast, it's a fascinating place to think about. And I I guess maybe for your, your listeners, I just say, when you think about streets, You probably have a few that you think are really wonderful. Maybe you think about your stroll down the Champs-Élysées or something or some street that, you know, was really lovely that you grew up on and probably 99% of the rest of your memories 
are like not worth remembering, you know, they're just kind of banal. And why is that? Okay. All right. So, so that takes us right to something I just loved that you said one is that, and I'll have you come on on this first, that cities are the biggest cooperative enterprises that humans have put together. I never thought of it like that, but cities make us cooperate. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's great research around this, you know, and about actually people's attitudes towards strangers and openness to cooperation, openness to new experience, correlating with people living in urban contexts and kind of closer to one another in, in neighborhoods, right? So Jane Jacobs, the famous American observer of, of cities who fought Robert Moses, actually, who was building freeways in New York in the 1960s, you know, she famously observes this idea of eyes on the street and the way that neighbors took care of each other's kids, mainly because they were sharing the street. They were actually able to sort of safely cooperate. But cities as a whole, really, I mean, they're, they're our biggest artifact. They're our biggest designed object that we have. And I, I just think it's so fascinating. You know, Tim Cook at Apple just unveiled the newest iPhones this week. And, you know, it fills an auditorium and the internet's ablaze for this design object. So that's like, three by five inches. And we have so much reverence for this thing. Why don't we have that for the biggest design object that we have, which is the city? This is an iPhone on a cosmic scale that we've created over the last centuries. And we should treat it that way. This is this is like an aha moment to me. Maybe not. I've been in cities all over the world. I'm not a city dweller. I live in the country. As a matter of fact, I'm hoping you're not hearing too much of the bird feeder that's like one foot away from me over here. But but it is a sort of a revelation to think about it in the terms you just put it. How much energy and and fastidiousness has been applied to this thing that we're carrying around in our pocket and the everyday places where our feet touch the planet. It seemed to have gotten almost no, sorry, almost no consideration when how they make our lives better. Yeah, and I think it's partly because it is a collective endeavor that the authorship of the city is maybe not as clear. But I guess you know what I'd love to, for your your listeners to to know is that the city is just as designed as an iPhone. In fact, every square inch of it has been you could say almost predetermined in a lot of cases by a set of rules and codes. It is sort of like the code of a computer that have been copied and pasted and copied and pasted for decades. And that that really was not the case a hundred years ago. Before, before the sort of dawn of the modern age, cities were a little more kind of organic and there were some certain agreements about how people came together, but it was really that the city was kind of the result of real estate and community. And, and with the public realm being the result largely of just kind of people's individual community choices coming together. In the 1920s, a couple things happened. We had the creation of engineering standards related to the private automobile. And this was really driven by car companies who we're getting a super bad rap at the time because their cars were running over mostly children because that's where the street is where children played. And so they didn't want to be kind of associated with that. And so the idea was if we can engineer the children out of the street, we can sell more cars. I mean, that's just the basic kind of history of it. At the same time, we also had a movement in some cities to create zoning, which zoning is, is a framework by which we sort of designate different parts of the city for different activities. 
And it, at first, the idea was to kind of remove noxious activities like rendering plants from next to people's houses. So there was the health and safety reason. But very quickly, it, it actually started being used to limit people of color from living next to white people. And that actually, I hate to say, was, was first pioneered in the city that I live in, Berkeley, California. And the city has just now actually removed these laws and sort of renounced the kind of purpose of zoning as a segregation tool. So these trends kind of started and then they picked up steam and they've kind of been going ever since for the last 100 and 120 years. And, you know, we can talk more about kind of what the effect has been, but that's the code, unfortunately, that we're running. And then you mentioned something that I never really thought about either. I was really young or not even born when this was going on, but there was like a mass flight out of cities in the 1950s to suburbia, 60s, and there was a lot of deep decay going on in cities. And then in the last 50 years, that's that sort of reversed. Tell us to us about that concept. Sure. I mean, the flight, you know, what, what is sometimes called white flight or suburban flight, it's really, you know, it was kind of a crossing of those two forces that, that I just talked about, zoning and transportation design. So when you have the kind of Interstate Highway Act that Eisenhower signed into law and, you know, this massive investment in large roads and then single family zoning that created a, a sort of an exclusive zone outside of city centers, which, by the way, depress the actual kind of amount of housing available to everyone because you could it made housing more expensive and it forced people to only live in single families right so you couldn't have intergenerational families anymore living in in that zoning right so grandma couldn't live with you and take care of the kids that kind of crossed those two factors crossed in the 1950s 60s and 70s right and so you really had this kind of emptying out of american cities and disinvestment and I mean, we're seeing a turnaround actually, because for the first time in the last generation, folks have started to move back into cities. The trend has sort of changed, but we're still dealing with decades of, of disinvestment from those city centers. Okay. So to, let's get to the heart of this. There's this beautiful quote. I don't know if it came from you, but I know I heard it, heard it as I was doing my research on you. You said, and I know, now that I think about it, you said it to me in our pre-interview. You said, there should not be any throwaway moments in life. The idea that we've built this system of getting place, a system that's punishing and lonely, just is a big waste of a lot of moments. <laughs> I added that. I added that last sentence. But talk to me about this. There should be no throwaway moments. And yet we've created this punishing, lonely system. Yeah. I mean, the promise of what it means to drive in your car, right? According to the car ads is kind of windows down, wind in your hair, moving fast, going great places in an opening landscape, you know, seeing the Grand Canyon out in front of you or something. That's not how we spend most of our time in our cars. If we have built a system kind of where we, we need our cars to do everything now, we need it to get to work, we need it to get groceries, we need it to pick up our kids and get our kids to their friends' houses, and we need to see our relatives. So really, the it's become our primary, our default transportation system. But again, like the sort of frog in the water, we haven't noticed that it has slowly kind of made us less happy. And I have a car. Look, I'm not a zealot. I love going on road trips, but I think that the car is really best for getting between 
city A and city B or driving through the country. It's it's for the open road. Your trip to your daycare is not the open road. Your trip, you know, to Safeway is not your open road. So we've sort of been sold a, a story that actually kind of isn't our daily experience. And there's some really interesting research around this. I mean, some researchers in Scandinavia found that adding an hour to your commute is the equivalent in happiness terms and reported happiness terms of taking a 40% pay cut. Vice versa, removing removing an hour from your commute is equivalent of getting 40% raise. People who have a 90 minute commute tend to think about, they, they tend to worry on average, they're 40% more than people who have a 30 minute commute, but that wasn't found in people who walk and bike. So, you know, these are like little anecdotes, but I think all of us can kind of reflect for ourselves where the moments of frustration and boredom and kind of feeling isolated in our lives might be maybe different for everybody, but I, I would sort of suggest that for a lot of us, it's in our cars. And it just, if, you know, if I could just sort of propose anything would be like, does it really have to be that way? I mean, we chose it. We chose the situation. We designed it. We can design it a different way too. That is such a big point. You know, you, you have this great term. Let's see where I write it down. You said, when we separate destinations too much, we displace nourishing mobility. I think that's the open road feeling that you're describing that makes us feel sort of excited and free. We replace it with junk mobility that makes us feel bored, trapped, and stressed out. I, I, <laughs> this is it. Yeah. And you know what? The other kind of nourishing mobility I'd, I'd offer is to be on foot, to be on a bicycle, or to even be in a vehicle with with other people who might be strangers to you. Now, I don't want to take away from the fact that actually some really important family time happens in the car. I'll say that's true for my family, at least. I have two, two young boys, and a lot of good times happen in the car. But there's something about being out there with your fellow residents, fellow citizens, fellow humans on earth, where you're doing things together and actually transit has the ability to be that. I think if it's, if it's done well, I mean, transit doesn't get a very good rap in the U S but you go to places where transit systems work really well and they're invested, they're invested in, they're clean, they run on time. There's a great user experience. They are lovely public spaces. They're lovely places to see your fellow humans. So. I think there's a lot of ways that nourishing mobility can show up, but it is certainly possible to design that experience. And I'd say just removing the amount of mobility that we need. You know, we don't need to put everything so far apart that we need to spend an hour getting everywhere. And that really has to do again with this idea of zoning, the idea that we have pushed things that we need further apart from each other. And so it becomes actually harder to get them which is a really interesting paradox. That leads me to something that I remember you said to me that I thought, oh, we're going to talk about this. You said cities are experiments. We're always living out the experiment that our grandparents' generation created. <laughs> and that, that's, yeah. that goes so much, so well with what you just said. That's right. I mean, what's so interesting about cities is that there have been you know, every generation has this great big idea about what a city should be. And, you know, in the night in the 1920s, it was the dawn of modernism. It was this idea that sort of function trumped form and we needed to 
be very concerned with what the kind of every everything had to have its own function and be its own, own place. And you, know, you saw that in architecture and all kinds of design. And it was, you know, it was rash, like rationalism applied in the city. It took 75 years for that vision to finally make its way, work its way from some big experiments to some smaller cities. to now it's sort of part of, you know, that code that, that you could say that computer code that runs kind of our our urban civilization. I'm really interested in how we can kind of increase the clock speed on these experiments because we just live in an age where we don't have time to live out the experiments of our grandparents in our own lives. We need to be living kind of the exper experiments of our grandchildren. We need to be thinking about, you know, what is it that we can be doing now that will make the planet for them that they need, that can make the city for them that they need. Okay, so I'm just going to own it. People are seeing me looking down. I'm taking careful notes here. Blaine, you really, you're really dropping some really thoughtful things for us to contemplate there. This, this trying to speed up the experiment time is huge. I'm, you made me think of you know the automobile commercials in the, like the 1930s and 40s, showing these happy families and two-car garage homes and all that. Well, it did take 50, 60 years to see that play out. But by then we didn't want it as much anymore. Yeah. Or we realized we couldn't afford it. We realized that that wasn't maybe, you know, the best use of our resources. I mean, you know, there's a statistic that actually just before we we got on the, the call here, I was, I was looking up the category of Americans consumer spending that is the largest is transportation. Um, so we spend more of our income on getting around than anything else. And we spend more than other countries do. So there's something about that investment and the kind of idea about what the two-car garage is that maybe might not be working out so well, at least in terms of what we think, you know, we get joy from. And then when you look at that by income group, that hits hardest on middle and lower income folks. And, you know, we see this kind of across the board, you know, in terms of traffic safety too, we look at who is impacted most by vehicle crashes, pedestrian injuries and deaths. It's three groups of people. It's young people, it's children, it's older people, and it's people of color. So when we kind of look at like who the system is working for and who it's not, it tends to be, unfortunately, most impacting the people who can kind of help themselves the least, who have the least means. At the same time, I mean, this is true kind of from the beginning in our history, but it's really caught up to everybody, I think. I think we are all kind of looking at, wow, you know, like things are really expensive. You know, like, can I really afford this car payment too and the gas that goes along with it? So th the tricky thing is we've just sort of got ourselves a little bit into a situation where it's hard to get out of it, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's so interesting in the space that I try and work in is, is actually how do we kind of walk this back in a way by finding these these little points where things can work differently and sort of proving proving them out. So give us a give us some fun examples. Give us a couple of fun examples of things that are that we might not know about or that we might know about that are perfect examples of this kind of change in thinking about what we give our space to. Well, you know, I didn't really finish doing my bio actually. So just working okay. backwards from the year in 2014 when when I started the offices of Gale. Before that, I had founded a um, an art collective called Rebar. And back in 2005, one of our first projects was just this kind of fun experiment, this little appropriation of a public space 
which just happens to be the metered parking spot on the street. And we had kind of discovered this as a, almost like a loophole in the municipal code, which says that you can rent that real estate, that 20 by 10 foot piece of real estate for, you know, let's say it's $2 an hour in 2005. Well, when you math that out, that is the cheapest 200 square feet of downtown real estate you could have possibly rented. It actually is extremely affordable and available for, you know, in two hour chunks. So we thought, all right, let's see if we can maybe do something else with that, that little square of the city. So we kind of brainstormed a few things and finally landed on this idea of creating a small public park, you know, just a tree, turf, and a bench. And we went out one Friday and rented, rented the parking space legally and put out the park. And, you know, after like 15 minutes of people kind of walking by skeptically, someone came in, took off his shoes, sat down, someone else saw that guy sitting there, brought in his pizza that, you know, he was eating and they started to have a conversation. And, and then over the next, you know, two hours, people kind of cycled in and out while we just kind of watched. So that little experiment went early days of the web went viral and we started getting inquiries kind of from all over the world about, Hey, can you do this in my city? Someone from Sicily wrote us from Italy, people from Australia were writing us. We said, well, we can't, we've spent, you know, our $300 that we had on this installation. So we wrote a manual, made it open source, kind of put the values in it that it needs to be non-commercial and need to be you know, safe and generous and fun. And people started doing it every year. So we have had, since that day, we've had an event called Parking Day around the world where people appropriate these small public public spaces for something other than a car. And you can do anything. You can. People have made ball pits. People have put in pool tables. It's really up to you. So that's kind okay, of a so fun one. You're actually talking about a parking space. Not a not parking just, space. Not yeah. just the place up on off up, up off the curb where you know between the sidewalk and the meter. You're talking about just doing what you want with the parking space that you rented for two hours. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the piece of asphalt where you park, you know, your BMW or your your Honda. Like that's that is, you know. So what I think is surprising for a lot of folks, even though I think we would have thought about it, we would know this is true. That is owned by the public. Those spaces are ours, right? And we rent them to private individuals to store their personal property. There's very few things like that that we do. And yet all of us feel like we are entitled to our private parking spaces, maybe outside of our own house. So this experiment was a little way to, for us to kind of nudge on that and say, you know, what what can we put here for the public, not just kind of for, for private convenience? Okay, I, this is, you know, now I'm thinking of little parklets that have popped up in places in cities that I know, little tiny uses, different uses. Of course, uh, we've all, we've taken over the streets from the pandemic. You know, a lot of restaurants now have outdoor seating that may never go away. Talk to me yeah. some more about space use and great innovation like that. Well, I, you know, with the, with the parklets, it's interesting. Folks may not know, a lot of people have seen parklets in their city, right? It's just kind of new, new thing. Cafes love them. Some of them are community spaces. Those actually developed out of parking day. So what happened was the city of San Francisco, the planners in the city and the mayor's office saw it and they said, this is, this is cool. They met with us. They met with Rebar, our group, and said, we'd like to make this more permanent. Can you help us craft the ordinance that would create a, a pilot program? And so one of the things we early on sort of tried to write into that was that the spaces need to be open to everybody. It couldn't be, you know, that you, you had to purchase 
something like a coffee or whatever to sit there. Because if you think about it, again, that is a public space, right? That is owned by us. And so to charge folks to have the privilege of occupying something that is theirs is just kind of insane. Now, I think when you store your private vehicle, it kind of is different and maybe it makes sense to get some income from that. But it was a great experiment kind of early in the 2010s. And then I think that actually set us up when the pandemic hit, we sort of had a playbook, right? We knew, hey, here's this type of space we can build pretty quickly to get people outside. And so I I think that actually had we not had parking day and had parklets, the pandemic just, it might've taken us a little longer to figure the whole thing out. But there was certainly a playbook that went all the way back to that first, that first experiment. And the last thing I'll say on this is my hope is that we we have learned something about the value of that space, even if we need to kind of make these dining sheds look better and last longer now that we're moving on, that we actually enjoy being outside. That's huge enough right there. There's something about being able to be more flexible about our comforts when we sit outside there, you know, that everybody's kind of got a shared, a little bit of shared struggle when it's too cold or too hot. And shared struggle is what brings people t- together too. And we got to talk about the connection that public spaces allow us to in this time period. So uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about something that I just love that, that Blaine said to me. He said, effervescent human activity comes out of vibrant human spaces, which also happen to be sustainable and right-sized for the density. So this all thing, this whole thing comes together at some point. Okay, we're going to take a break and we'll come back. We'll talk about ever effervescent human activity. Hi, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of the Goodness Exchange and host of the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. And I want to share something wonderful with you today. So you know how the constant negativity in the news and social media seems to be at some sort of boiling point right now? It's relentless. It can feel like all the joy and potential is being drained out of our future. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. My team and I at the Goodness Exchange are making certain that optimistic people have instant access to positive news. There are newsworthy stories out there about astounding solutions to some of the world's biggest problems, about wonders and leaps in human potential. It's not a lack of good news. It's a lack of awareness. So if you want to try living with more joy and way less fear, it's really simple. First, head over to goodness-exchange.com where you can balance your media diet and feed your curiosity about a world with real life stories, celebrating people solving the world's greatest problems. And second, you can become a Goodness Exchange member. And for just $2 a month, you can help us keep this site ad-free. And what you're going to get is high-quality, carefully curated stories all about the good that's happening in our world. And all of it sent directly to your inbox or via our beautiful app. In the face of all the negative noise and often discouraging things that happen in our personal lives, you'll be the one who can stay on your feet. You can point to possibility and be the person who makes opportunity of setbacks. People who use the Goodness Exchange have a spring in their step. Every day they radiate joy and confidence because they know far more about the complete picture of what's going on out there in the world. 
you can do more and be more in a positive way for your kids, your coworkers, your family, and all the people around you. Because you're going to be filled with stories of goodness, remarkable, ingenious solutions, and progress. Super simple to open the door to a new landscape of possibility for yourself and others. Just get instant access to what's right with the world and leave all the negative noise behind. You can use it every day by heading straight over to goodness-exchange.com backslash join. And you can get 14 days on us when you sign up for this membership. Thanks so much. We hope you'll join us in making the world a better place. There is a conspiracy of goodness going on. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably part of it. Okay, we're back. Today, we're having a, a lovely chat with Blaine Merker. Blaine is a an urban designer who is focused on bringing us all together, making sure our city spaces are healthy and places where we can connect instead of just sacrificing the whole darn thing to the needs of our cars. So Blaine, keep going. Fill us in on how cities work and how we can have effervescent human activity in our streets. Wow. Well, that's really what we, what we spend our time working on at Dale. We, you know, look at the way people behave in streets and maybe I'll, I'll just share the way that we kind of developed this method was our founder, Jan Gale, was trained as an architect in Copenhagen, was really building these kind of modernist housing projects back in the sixties. And his wife, Ingrid was trained as a sociologist and she over dinner one night said, do you have any idea how your the people who live in your, your housing projects, what they do every day or, or what they do in between the buildings? And he said, no, I don't know. I just, just designed them. And she said, like, let's, let's go. I want to teach you some methods. Let's go look. And so she taught him how to observe using quantitative ethnography. And they went to, they went to Italy and they kind of went around all the little Italian hill towns and they measured how much time people spent sitting outdoors and how much people sat down and what the relationship was between the number of chairs and the number of people who sat in chairs. Turns out the more chairs there are, the more people there are sitting in them. And if you don't have any chairs, there is actually no one sitting down. He developed this method and he came back to Copenhagen and, and Copenhagen's, you know, Nordic, it's chilly, it's a winter country, you know, and he said, we need to have more people sitting outside. And everyone said, ah, oh, we're not Italian, you know, that'll never work. But he nevertheless kind of measured, he went out and started measuring people in the streets. And they found out, sure enough, that the same rules applied. The places where there was seating, where there was warmth, and it might be a heat lamp, or it might just be a blanket that someone has at the cafe table, that's where the people were. And so the city embarked on a an experiment over the next 40 years to gradually pedestrianize its streets. And they would, every year, they'd count the number of chairs, they'd count the number of people, they'd count the amount of time that people spent in one place. And they found out that there was a direct relationship to the amount of space that people were given and the amount of time that they would spend enjoying it. And so the city of Copenhagen changed year by year by year. And if you know any of your listeners have, have been to Scandinavia or been to a city like Copenhagen, they'll see it's one of the best places in the world to be a pedestrian and one of the best places to hang out in summer and in winter, by the way, because they've really figured out how to sort of live in the cold comfortably. 
I think people think that, you know, Scandinavia is just different or maybe the people there are more enlightened or something. It, they were just like us. They had their cities choked with traffic too. The difference is that kind of using this method, they carefully and incrementally changed using observation and data to give them the kind of reason to take the next step. And we really kind of have continued that since uh, now in North America, working in cities like New York, San Francisco, Vancouver, and Chicago. What you're talking about too, is surely has to, if it already doesn't, weave back to climate change. So yeah. help us understand, and that goes back to this, how fast can we experiment? <laughs> yeah, so go yeah. ahead, talk to us about all this. Well, we we don't have enough time to move slowly here, right? We need to move faster than we've ever moved on anything in society before in order to really pull ourselves back from creating a planet that I don't think is going to be too great for any of us to live on, certainly not for our, our children or grandchildren. So, you know, a couple of things about this. No, number one is the things I think that bring us the most joy, and this is, I don't know, this is a theory, bring us the most joy, make us happy, give us meaning in life. They're carbon neutral. They're not high intensity energy use. They're being able to sort of make connections to people in your community. They are spending time with your family and loved ones. They are creating things and enjoying small moments where you live. Now, that is sort of interesting when you think about what we spend most of our energy on, right? And we go back to talking about jet mobility, right? We're spending a lot of carbon, spending a lot of energy, spending a lot of money on things that maybe don't bring us the most joy. So I'm really interested in this kind of alignment between climate action and happiness and sort of human, you know, human thriving. Because I, I do think that the answer has to be we solve the climate crisis and we accidentally thrive in the process, or maybe not accidentally. Maybe we thrive on purpose because we figure out that that's, those two things are actually related. But the world is going to change no matter what. Our lives are going to change. They're going to be upended. We're going to have to have a whole new economy to live in a sustainable way. So that's going to happen whether or not we solve climate change. We're either going to be disrupted completely or we're going to have to disrupt what we do. So the question is just like, what kind of world do we want to create in the process of, of solving climate change? You know, and I guess where sort of public space comes into all this is public spaces work when they are activated by people living near them. Streets are activated when people live on them in close proximity, when people can walk to the corner store, when they can you know, bike their children to school when they can go visit their grandparents a few doors down. That's what creates really lively streets and lively public spaces. It just happens to have that co-benefit of being the most sustainable form of urbanism that we have. And it, it turns out, this is research from the, the Cool Climate Network at UC Berkeley, that if you live in a major city, most major cities, the number one most effective climate lever that your city has to pull is to do infill urban development. It's more than electrific electrifying your heating system. It's more than changing your diet. It is the number one thing is just to invite more neighbors into your neighborhood, especially if it's served well by public transit and it has jobs close to housing. So I think this is kind of a win-win here, right? We can create 
create public spaces. We can be closer to the people we love. We can be closer to the community we want to create at the same time as we're doing the best thing for climate change and we're spending less time on mobility that, that we don't care about. So this is the brilliance and the hope that's in all of this. And one of the reasons why I invited you on as a guest, because as soon as I recognize that win-win-win triangle that's going on here, these are the things we have to celebrate and help rise to the top of our digital lives. It can't just be knuckles dragging doom and gloom all day long. <laughs> Oh, for this exact reason, there's so much potential here. Here's something that you said that I'd love for you to comment on. You said, we've lost the culture of community sharing outside of our families. Yeah. And some refreshing new questions are, what can we share and what can we steward together? We can get past this. I don't even know my neighbor's name. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us do have close neighbors, you know, people we like, maybe some you don't, but in every neighborhood, there is a chance to create mutual reliance, mutual stewardship, kind of shared purpose around stewarding the physical environment where we live. And there are movements around the country to do this around neighborhood streets, right? There's a project that started in Portland, Oregon called Intersection Repair, where folks you know, will paint kind of big graphics and mandalas in the center of their you know, neighborhood intersection. You know, kids coming out with the paint and they put benches out and they'll put like sharing stations and little libraries and stuff. You know, when that first happened, actually in Portland, the, the Bureau of Streets came out and they removed everything. The mayor found out about it. And she said, if so someone in the neighborhood is trying to make their street better, never take it out again. I want you to find a way to make this possible for any neighborhood to do. And so that's kind of taken off as a movement. It looks different everywhere. City of Barcelona has created these things called uh, super manzanas, you know, super blocks, which are basically taking several of the city blocks and then removing traffic on the interior streets and making those play zones and places for people like kind of mini parks. It has the benefit also of actually reducing traffic congestion because it rationalizes the grid. So there's all kinds of ways that we can kind of create shared stewardship and purpose. And in the end, what you're stewarding is not just a space, you're, you're really stewarding a, a relationship with your neighbors. We have kind of given over, you know, care of our public realm to the government, which is going to make me sound like kind of a, you know, glazing libertarian or something, but I don't think it should just be the government's job to provide public space. That's like, we have to do that. We have to fill it with the social purpose. But I think many people kind of see, you know, the street as sort of not for them. You know, why can't it be? So yeah, take a chance, you know, ask a neighbor if they want to take down your fence in the backyard or even better, do something in front together, like tear up the extra sidewalk and plant a tree or work with your city to find out if you can do traffic calming or narrowing of the street, create some places for people other than drivers to, to use that space. Did this start back? I just am thinking of little sparks of light that I remember seeing over the last 30 years, especially when the whole TED movement came. There have been, do you remember a guy that was called the Gorilla Gardener? Yeah, he, yeah. Yeah, he was one of the one one of these people that kind of had this little tiny mini park, pop-up park kind of things. Give us some more examples of things that, that you know of that we might not, if we're not city dwellers, or obviously we, we don't all live in the same cities, some cool places around the world or that you know of. Yeah. I mean, there, there are places where this is happening in big cities and small towns. And on kind of one end of the spectrum, you've got a place like Times Square, which is really one of the first big American projects that, that we worked on at Gale. 
people might remember that Times Square in the early 2000s was mostly kind of a taxi traffic jam. We studied it. The Bloomberg administration asked us to take a look at it, to be able to change it kind of overnight and reverse it overnight if we needed to. You know, Bloomberg's sort of a data guy and he wanted to see numbers. And so we found a lot of statistics about it. But one, the, the one thing that was probably the most impactful politically is we noticed that 90% of the users, which were people walking, were in 10% of the space. And 90% of the space was devoted to to cars, and that was actually 10% of the users. So it was, it was exactly reversed. And, you know, that kind of gave everyone the courage to say, well, we could like move the needle, you know, 5%, we could move it 10%. So they moved it like 80% and went from sort of lawn chairs and paint to a full redesign of Times Square, which, hey, you know, Times Square isn't for everyone. I don't want to spend more than 15 minutes there, like getting hugged by giant Mickey Mouses and stuff. But it has created a space where people can come together and really feel that kind of amazing community in New York City. So that's on the large scale, you know, but there's places on the smaller scale, like um, there's a great city called Carmel, Indiana, where their mayor has really championed biking and bike paths as a driver of development. So he's, he's, created this beautiful a trail that, that we worked on called the Monin Trail downtown. And it is, it's really like a biking oriented redevelopment program where all the new buildings and Main Street kind of front on this bike trail. And so you can actually experience the whole city just by biking. There's smaller towns around the country, like city of uh, Mountain View, where we're working is turning over their kind of Main Street to create a pedestrian plaza. You'll find it everywhere and you'll find it a lot of times in temporary programs because in the last, through the pandemic and even before, cities were really experimenting with this kind of temporary pedestrianization. And where I see the kind of hill to get over is in making those permanent because it costs a lot and it's a big it's a big political choice sometimes to really commit to it. So I think if that's something that you're excited about, you know, city councils love to hear from people. If you can support that in your own city, it's worth checking out. So that that reminds me of a, a comment that you made along the way somewhere about, about this, that we don't sacrifice. So we tell ourselves stories about the sacrifice that we're making. And then so often we find out that it was just a story we were telling ourselves. You know, we think it's, oh, it's a sacrifice. I won't be able to go straight home, straight down that street. I went down a hundred times. But we don't also tell ourselves the stories of what's possible if we give up that. I mean, your example of Times Square and the 10%, 90% rule. Is- yeah. Well, a lot of times what we actually stand, it's very, so human beings are hardwired to be loss averse, right? You will get more pushback from someone, and this this is totally proven by psychology, that you will get more pushback from somebody if you try to take something away, then people will care about getting something new. So, you know, we're not very good at understanding the new thing that we haven't experienced before, but we're very good at protecting the old thing. Even if the old thing is maybe not that great, if we really think about it. And I think it's a good thing to sort of know about human behavior. So whenever I talk to people about what there is to gain by creating a more human-centered city, I try to start with what people already know, what they already have experienced. You know, for a lot of folks, you ask, like, where do you go on vacation when you can go to a city? And people will talk about, you know, strolling on some beautiful street in Portugal and like drinking wine and watching the sunset. And you say like, well, so 
climate similar here? Could you do that here? It's like, well, no, but I, you know, I need to get out of here. And it's just there's too much traffic and it's kind of ugly, you know? So when we kind of talk about where we, like what we love, we've all experienced these great places before. We've all experienced maybe if you know how to ride a bike, you know, you've experienced the joy of what it is to ride a bike on a quiet street. It's really just about making that experience the, the rule rather than the exception, making it the thing that you get for free every day, instead of the thing that you had to pay $5,000 to go, you know, see as a tourist. That's such a great point too. You know, it, that you can, you can't be here and not mention about our exposure to diversity. And that can be anything from the busker that's playing some kind of music that we never heard or never thought we might like. There's a famous, there's a famous video where Yo-Yo Ma is sitting in a train station mm. playing one of his favorite pieces and people are just zooming by and not even realizing <laughs> what's going on. But then there's the diversity of running into people who aren't like us and and the way that spaces have us interacting. Talk to us about how biases go up and down when you bring people together. Well, you know, I, I'm, I think we've all had experiences of being in our own bubble in our neighborhoods might be a bubble. You might not see anyone who doesn't look like you, or maybe you can tell when a stranger walks by and you're not, you know, you feel like they, they're not from here. It's a really interesting thing because we're, our brains are hardwired to map ideas of community and belonging onto spatial memory. So we have a real strong perception of sort of what is a safe environment based on like where we are. Well, we talked a little bit about some of the problems of that around things like single family zoning, right? There's, you know, if you don't, if you don't know the story about it, it's, it's really quite sad. It's, you know, single family zoning, which seems like kind of a benign thing, right? It seems like some tech technical designation really was used as a tool to separate people of color out of cities into it's called redlining to put, make sure that they could only buy homes in redline zones. So the kind of the negative consequence of that, I think for everybody is that we started to live in a segregated society and segregated societies aren't great, right? For a lot of things. they reduce our empathy, allow us to kind of other, other people, right. To sort of consider them not as, not as human as us. So there's good research though, that shows that when you encounter people who look different from you in a more regular and constant way, your tolerance for diversity goes up and your curiosity and goodwill towards other people goes up, it, but it goes up at a certain point it has to be above seeing kind of the random person who doesn't look like you. So these researchers, they studied people on trains and they, they would, they had this natural experiment where they would have folks with dark skin go into primarily white trains and they would, you know, see how people kind of responded when <laughs> there was only one versus when there were like many folks that were diverse in the community. And they found that the, actually the more diversity there was, the more tolerance there was. And there, there was more suspicion when there was kind of only a couple of people who looked different. So I guess the point of all this, and it's, it's fascinating stuff to get into is, you know, we need to strive to have cities that create environments where we get to see each other, where we get to be among people who are different from us and who also have different life circumstances because it helps us appreciate everybody. And it also means that there is opportunity for everybody, right? If 
a diverse group of people can be in a place, they're sharing the opportunity of living there. And just add one more point to this, which is that the researcher Raj Chetty has shown that the zip code where you grow up has as much to do with your life circumstances economically, with how much you're going to earn in your life, as actually how much money you had or your family had growing up. So in other words, it's more important what neighborhood you live in for opportunity than almost anything else. So the best thing we can do for equity actually is really integrate our neighborhoods and invite neighbors in who may not look like us. So it's such a such a beautiful way of thinking about possibility. Because I again I can't get off this that it seems like such a win-win. You get more diverse folks, you get more diverse restaurants, you get more diverse ways that your children think about the world, you get less fear and more joy because you get exposure to things that you are you, you've never known and Let's wrap up with this notion of pride in place as well, because I think where you're going with this is that anybody who's kind of a naysayer (laughs) who might be listening to this conversation, which I don't think there probably are very many, but they might be saying, well, we can't have everybody on the streets. There'll be garbage everywhere and there'll be people sleeping on the benches and all the things, right? But I suspect that there's research on that pride in place kind of buoys the whole system from everyone, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, the best neighborhoods, we know when we're in them, right? They look, they're clean. There's people who live there, take ownership, take pride in it. People use the spaces. And when you see when you see people using the spaces, they're not just the people who don't have anywhere else to be or who don't have anywhere to sleep. It's everybody. And I think what's interesting about, you know, say seeing homeless folks sleeping out in public is that it's, we, we've, we've studied this and, and it's often, it's not that there are higher numbers of homeless people sleeping, people who are experiencing homelessness. It's the spaces are devoid of other people. And so you notice more if no one else is owning that space, right? If you've got a busy plaza and, you know, 200 folks are there enjoying coffee and sunning themselves and the kids are playing and like two of those people or five of those people are sleeping out, you don't really notice. And I think that's sort of something that we, it goes back to this idea of what are streets for? We in America have have kind of taken as a given that streets are not for everyone. They are for people who don't have any other choice. And what if they were for everyone? I think it might sort of flip how we think about what being on the street means. Now, that's not to downplay all the kind of help that those folks needed, the kind of investment in mental health and social services and the public realm that we we need to have, right? So that's a key ingredient. We can't have pride in place if we have disinvestment. And we can't have disinvestment if we believe that public investment is only for me, right? And if if I invest in someone else who's going to benefit from it who doesn't look like me, but then I don't want to invest. So it's this thing where you got to be generous, right? It starts with generosity. You got to say, hey, this isn't just my neighborhood and it's maybe the benefits of it aren't just for me. But I'm going to trust that if everybody gets something out of this place, that it's going to be better for me too, because it will be. So it's, I would just kind of say for anyone who feels nervous about inviting in more neighbors or inviting in more activity, and I get it, changes, changes definitely a tricky, but 
try to operate from that place of generosity and say like, this could, this could be better for me too in the end. And it certainly could be really better for some other folks. And by the way, we got to do it because it is the single best lever we have for fixing climate change and other problems. Well, <laughs> Blaine, my face hurts a little bit from smiling too much through this whole thing. I can't tell you how much hope and light you've shown on this matter just in one hour. And I want to remind people that you can look up Blaine's name on the internet and find some other talks that he's given that I was first attracted to. And of course, we'll connect you to the Goodness Exchange article about this exact topic that has a beautiful video that I first saw Blaine speaking in. So thank you so much. Let's wrap up on, on where people can connect with you or it, do you want people to connect with you? What should people do next? Please, please connect. Please connect. I love connect. Yeah, people can people can email me. I'll go ahead and give my email here at the risk of putting it all over the internet, but it already is. So it's Blaine, B-L-A-I-N-E at galepeople.com, G-E-H-L people. Dot com And you can follow me on Twitter at Blaine Merck and follow Gail too. I have about a hundred just amazing colleagues at Gail who also write and post and think about all kinds of things about urbanism, about street life, about the arts and the environment. And you might love to follow them too. And their handle or the Gail's, Gail's handle on all the social media is at Cities for People. Oh, terrific. Uh, thank you so, so much. For any of the things that, that Blaine and I mentioned here, you'll find them in the show notes. Head on over to the, the Goodness Exchange as well and join us there for people exactly like Blaine who are thinking fresh thoughts. They're the thoughtful, measured voices, the helpers that are out there in numbers that we need to give our attention to now. So thanks, Blaine. I hope that all the connections to goodness and progress that Blaine and I shared with you today carry you through your week and you start finding all the joy and wonder that we've been talking about. Thanks a lot. It's great joining this conversation with you. All right. Terrific. Thanks so much, Blaine. Have a good week, everybody.